As a former Soviet republic, many people in Georgia are taking a stand with Ukraine. I don't think there is a single car or house that doesn't have a Ukrainian flag sticker in the window. There are so many statements of solidarity. Coming up, we'll get recent impressions from a visit to Georgia. As Amsterdam gears up for tourist crowds, we'll update your options for enjoying the city and its neighborhoods. I would say if you didn't experience Amsterdam from the water, you definitely missed out on something. And we'll look at the islands of the South Seas, where thousands of miles of open ocean didn't isolate them from Polynesian navigators. Captain Cook noticed it, too. Once he began to see the similarities among the people, it started to become clear to everybody that it wasn't just that there were all these people, they were all the same people. Deciphering the mysteries of Polynesia, insider tips for enjoying Amsterdam, and finding what's uniquely Georgian. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's an ancient land and a recent republic squeezed between Turkey and Russia. And it's offering free visas for eligible digital nomads while thousands of young Russians have been arriving to escape Putin's war. We'll hear some recent impressions of Georgia as a destination in a minute. Plus, a guide from Amsterdam updates us on how the Dutch are reining in the rowdy young crowds to make sure it's a city everyone can enjoy. And later on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how Polynesian mariners settled the most isolated islands on Earth. In these days of crowdsourcing and Instagram herd mentality where everybody seems to go to the same places, a lot of people are looking for travel destinations that are off the grid with no crowds at all. A good example of that is Georgia in the far east of Europe. This is a place that has a fascinating cultural heritage, beautiful countryside, and no crowds. Tour guide Tim Tendick is just back from a visit to Georgia, and he joins us today to share what he found. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to talk about a place like Georgia with you. So, Tim, I've never been to Georgia. I'm curious, but you've been to Georgia several times. What appeals to you about Georgia? Why should somebody bother to go that far east on a European vacation? George is a great example of the way cultures can blend as you end up on the frontier. If you think of a more familiar one would be in southern Spain, as you go towards Andalusia and you see some of that Moorish influence combining mm. that sort of thing, you can see vividly in a country like Georgia, because you can be in Tbilisi and it has a lot in common with maybe maybe Vienna or more familiar elements there, as well as further eastern kind of near east things and then you can head over to batumi it's kind of the second city it's it's over on the beach there so you have a beachside promenade and it's in one sense it almost feels like miami but then on that promenade you can have bikinis and burkas walking down the same promenade and that blend of cultures to me is just absolutely fascinating because you know every element there has its own story to tell I mean, so many of us go, I go to I go to Italy, I go to Spain, I go to Ireland time and time again. And you could fly to Frankfurt or Berlin, and then instead of connecting south, you could connect east, and you could fly into the capital city of Tbilisi. Uh, you're in a country surrounded by Turkey, Russia, Armenia, the Black Sea. It's uh, been independent since the, the fall of the Soviet Union, about 1991. It's got just under 4 million people, 80% or so are Eastern Orthodox uh, part of the Russian Empire for nearly 200 years. Stalin was born there. I mean, talk about a fascinating yet mysterious country. Describe for me just the red tape that's involved. Do you need a visa? Uh, How about changing money? What about the language barrier? How expensive is it? 
you know, this is one where an American passport really pays off. I really had no problem going there. My first time going to Georgia was on a whim. I had been in uh, in Central Asia for a while. I was in Kyrgyzstan and then wandered to Kazakhstan and then thought, well, where do I want to go now? And all the, the flights to Georgia, a lot of them go through Istanbul. So I got to Istanbul and I thought, I'm going to go see Georgia. So I just flew out there on a whim and it was really quite easy. And then changing money and everything was fine. Tbilisi is a little expensive because it, it's known as a, a destination for digital nomads. And I think that that might be having an huh. effect. But certainly as you move around, it's quite easy. The language is tricky because I, I was getting a little bit adept at Cyrillic, but you get to Georgia and the script looks like nothing you've ever seen. I couldn't really tell where the letters were. So that part was a little difficult. And the words are amazing. They put more consonants together than I thought anybody other than a Scrabble bag would ever attempt. But it, it works. You just kind of you give it a go. And I actually never had a problem with finding people who spoke English as I moved around the country. A little bit of patience. Occasionally some uh, some charades skills were necessary. Right. But for the most part, I never had a problem. And it was I always felt welcome. I always felt safe. It was a, a remarkable country to move around in. And what's the cost of living there for a traveler? If you get out of Tbilisi, it was entirely reasonable. I based myself in Kutaisi for a while because there are so many day trips and things to do there. I could rent a car for quite cheap and just drive out into the Georgian countryside and go visit these amazing caves or, or go visit a dinosaur park. They have all sorts of things. Because that area, I don't know if you're familiar with Jason and the Argonauts, they think that was, he was headed to Colchis. And that Colchis, the capital of Colchis, is what is now Kutaisi. So as I moved around, I kept seeing myself as, you know, following in the footsteps of Jason and the Argonauts. So anywhere you go ah. just has this sense of, uh, of history. And okay, but, but actually for the cost, if you're thinking about the cost of Paris or Vienna or Rome, hmm. would Tbilisi, the capital, be about the same or less expensive? Tbilisi surprised me with how expensive it was. Some of the restaurants, I, I had to do the calculation a couple of times. I thought, am I in Paris? But mm -hmm. um, the accommodation was definitely less. Uh, mm -hmm. And then it's one of these things where as you move into some of the neighborhoods, you can find more of a local's place and it'll get a little, a little cheaper. But Tbilisi is more mm -hmm. like kind of Western Europe standards in some areas. And then as you move out into the other cities, it definitely gets a lot less expensive. Travel writer, tour guide, and world traveler Tim Tendick is telling us about his recent discoveries in the country of Georgia right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, Tim, when I'm thinking about Georgia, I can't help but think about Ukraine and the tragedy that's going on between Russia and that former Soviet state. I get this sense that Russia doesn't like a former Soviet state like Ukraine or Georgia succeeding and getting more affluent and more democratic and more pluralistic and, and more Western-looking. And that almost makes Russia want to come in and topple them and, and bring them back into the Russian fold as opposed to the Western-looking fold. Uh, and I know there's been civil unrest and demonstrations in Georgia recently because people there want to go closer to Europe and more distant from Russia. What is the vibe in Georgia right now when you consider what's going on a little bit over the border in Ukraine? I think you're absolutely right. Russia definitely prefers weak states. If you have a weak state near to them, then they can get in and they can influence. You can maybe bribe a politician and you can buy some assets and some infrastructure. So they don't have a problem with that. But when you have a strong government, they definitely will try to, to weaken that and attack that. Georgia is a, a great example of that, and the Georgians know it. Because mm. when I, I was in California and we saw some Ukrainian flags here and there, 
And then I went to Western Europe and was taking some of, of your tours around. And you see more flags there, I would say. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Central Asia. I was in Kazakhstan, which is very much under the Russian umbrella. And there was not a single Ukrainian flag to be seen anywhere. And I got to Georgia. And I don't think there is a single car or house that doesn't have a Ukrainian flag sticker in the window. There are so many statements of solidarity. When I first got there, I was I was having my first meal and I started talking to the man who owned the restaurant. And he said, a third of our country is occupied by Russia. You bet we're paying attention to Ukraine. Oh. You know, we can we can understand what it's like to be occupied by that. Because after the, the war in Abkhazia, the Russians supported one side in, in a kind of ethnic cleansing situation. And uh, the Georgians see it as that part of their country is occupied right now. I would think the Georgians understand that um, the front line for them against Russia is Ukraine, just like NATO sees it that way and most Americans see it that way. This is our fight. This is Georgia's fight. This is Germany's fight to contain Russia, and it's being played out on the Ukrainian battlefield. As you move around a city, I always like to pause a moment and read what the graffiti says. Mm-hmm. It can sometimes give you kind of an insight into the, into the zeitgeist of that community. And, for example, I've been in countries and seen maybe statements about the police in countries that don't have a problem with the police, just as a statement of, of youth and discontent. But in Georgia, there were a lot of statements about Russians going home, a lot of things about Russians not being welcome, a lot of stencils of Putin's face and and saying various things. And there was one particular wall near the apartment I was staying in where someone had written a reply. They'd written, not all Russians are Putin. And the the other graffiti artists, the other people with paint, had replied to that and, and basically made clear in no uncertain terms that whether you considered yourself Putin or not, Russia was persona non grata. Right. How do you say that for a country? Country non grata. Right. Like, they're very aware yeah. of it. You wrote an interesting uh, blog on your website. Uh, and your website, again, is vagabondurges.com. You wrote a blog about an experience you had in Saltubo in mm-hmm. Georgia and talking about, you know, the, the long association Russia and Georgia have had together. Didn't Stalin, of course, came from Georgia and uh, he used to go to the spas there just to soak, didn't he? He did. He, he had some, some knee pain. And in, in uh, the Soviet Union, the doctor could write you a prescription for a little R&R. You had to go out for a couple of weeks. And it was, it was seen as your duty as an individual and as the, you know, the, the state's duty to provide for you. So they built a whole ring of different sanatoriums and spas and amazing facilities based on the, the healing properties of the water there, which, which don't last once you take it out of the ground. So you can't bottle it. You can't ship ah. it. You have to go there. So in addition to a place like Sochi, you also had Skaltubo. And so you had this ring of, of a dozen different sanitariums. They're very ornate. They're very interesting in, in the kind of the Soviet architecture. But after the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they were just abandoned for years and they started crumbling. So as you move around them, they're, they're rather striking. You know, this is just a good example of how if you want to broaden your perspectives, if you're tired of the high costs and the high crowds of Western Europe, there are places to go. And Georgia would be one of them. Georgia's uh, respected for its wine. Georgians got all of this fascinating heritage. And, you know, when I was in Russia, when people wanted to eat out and go someplace a little different, everybody would just light up and enthusiastically agree, let's eat Georgian. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) What is it about Georgian cuisine? Tim, let's finish our conversation just by letting you enthuse a bit about what makes Georgian food such a hit in Russia. 
It is in rushes. It's uh, amazing all around that flavor, that combination of bold flavors. They love cheese. They definitely love their garlic. You can have, you know, a kachapuri bread with with the cheese in it is is a baseline to go with any of these things. I believe you might have talked about kinkali before. A lot of cultures have different types of dumplings. You know, you have paleni and, and tortellini, all these different types of dumplings. But in Georgia, they fill it with soup. It's a larger dumpling. You hold it by kind of the pinch part of the dough at the top. Yeah. And you take that bite and you have to drink it. You have to slurp it down really fast. And then you can leave that little tail of the dumpling on your plate. And uh, at the end, it almost feels like bragging rights. You get to say how many of these you managed to get down, but they're uh, they're delicious. It's different spice meat. That takes me right back to a Georgian restaurant in St. Petersburg where all my Russian friends were gathering around, kind of laughing at my inability to elegantly bite off a little (laughs) bit of that dumpling and drink it. It was a mess, but it was tasty. (laughs) It definitely takes practice, but it's something that's fun to work on. Tim Tendick, thanks so much for joining us and giving us a little insight into Georgia. Happy travels, and let's talk again soon. Sounds good to me. Happy travels, Rick. You can read Tim Tendick's postings from his travels, including photos from the abandoned spas of Saltubo, and learn more about his tours to Romania. It's on his website, vagabondurges.com. We'll look at how we understand the origins of Polynesia, where mariners settled the vast Pacific for a thousand years before European explorers ever arrived. But first, a local guide updates us on what you need to know for visiting Amsterdam. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When I finally went back to Amsterdam last year after the pandemic break, I was struck by how much had changed. Dutch ingenuity and pragmatism continues to shape the capital city of the Netherlands as it grapples with resident concerns about over-tourism and finding a way to manage its live-and-let-live reputation with the hard realities of managing a big city. Dutch tour guide Dennis Heretz joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves for an update on what's new in his city and what travelers can expect on their next visit. Dennis, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, hey, Dennis, you like to say that Amsterdam has so much more to offer than what a guidebook can tell you. What do you mean by that? Well, the guidebook will mostly send you into the more touristic areas. And when I talk about what Amsterdam has more to offer, I'm actually talking about the neighborhoods where you can see local life, feel local life, meet the locals, see where we go and follow our footsteps. Especially in Amsterdam, uh, you know, people arrive at Central Station, and they all follow the same line, the same sort of path. And sometimes I take guests five or ten minutes to the right or left, and then they're so surprised of what they see. And for me, it's like a normal thing, you know. It's so true, Dennis. People come in, whether they're flying or taking the train, they end up, you know, from the airport taking the train into the the main station. You step out from the main station, and and they're... Before you is Amsterdam, and you've got the dam rack going right up to Dam Square and the Royal Palace. There's Hooters. You know, there's the Sex Museum. There's the Canal Tours. It's all so predictable. And you just walk 10 minutes either way, and you have a whole different world. Now, Amsterdam has been really dealing, I think, with um, the impact of tourism. And like a number of cities in Europe... It's just getting out of hand. I remember before the pandemic, the big discussion in Amsterdam was, are the local people going to get angry with the tourists for messing up their neighborhoods? How is Amsterdam dealing with the crowd problem? Uh, Well, especially that problem is downtown. Um, And with downtown, I'm uh, mostly talking about the red light district area. 
Uh, yeah. Sometimes on certain evenings, it's so crowded in the red light district and these streets are so narrow that the uh, police uh, cannot guarantee safety anymore. So quite a lot of things have changed there. One of the main things is that I, as a guide, uh, I'm not allowed to do any tours in the red light district anymore, uh, which for me wasn't such a big thing because most of my guests didn't want to go there anyway because I could always convince right. them to go into a neighborhood. Um, but there's quite a lot of big companies that for them it's quite a, a big thing because they were promoting their red light district tours. So, yeah, there's a, a quite a big change there. Last time I was in the red light district, because I got to admit it's an intriguing area, uh, there was a campaign that was just a reminder to all the visitors, hey, this is a neighborhood. People live here. That was, that was the big challenge, was just letting people know, this is not a museum. This is not an amusement park. This is a neighborhood. There's a daycare here. There's a senior home there. There's, you know, people that are going about their daily life. And there's that overlay of all the tourists, all the marijuana shops, all the prostitutes. It's an amazing mix in Amsterdam. And we have to remember, it is a neighborhood. People are yep. living there. Yeah, yeah 5,000 people, actually, uh, and also families with children. And because of the prostitutes and the coffee shops, it, uh, for some people, it, it feels like an open-air festival. Uh, so yep. they yeah, tend to do all these things on the street that you would normally not do on a street in nowhere. But there, suddenly, it all sort of happening. It's also, I know for a lot of locals, not the neighborhood to go to anymore, which right. is a pity because it's a, when it comes to architecture and history, it's beautiful. Oh, I know it's beautiful. It's, it's the oddest thing. You can look at the rabble on the streets. You can look at what's being sold in the windows. And then you can look at the gables up above and you can see three different zones. When you look at the architecture in the gables and you, you know a little bit of Dutch history, you realize this was the springboard for world trade back in the in the day in the golden age, and uh, it's you know it's a red light district today because it was a sailors' quarter a long time ago. But today it translates into I think what the Dutch call nuisance tourists. You know, there's there's different kinds of tourists, and I I know all over Europe, tourist boards try to shape the clientele by promoting this instead of that. And Amsterdam is realizing, yeah, there's a little bit of money in people coming in to go to the Heineken Brewery Tour and to wander through the, the red light district. But there's a lot of hen parties and stag parties and cheap airplane rides into town that bring mobs of nuisance tourists. What's the dynamic there? What is the city trying to do to moderate that situation? Well, one of the things is uh, actually uh, when it comes to coffee shops, there's actually a new rule that only people who can demonstrate that they live in the Netherlands, that they can enter a coffee shop. It's one of these rules. It is an official rule, although it doesn't really apply in Amsterdam because every city uh, has the opportunity to decide themselves how to deal with it. So even today, okay. I see uh, lines of uh, tourists in front of the coffee shops. But and we should the, mention, Dennis, excuse me, that the coffee shops, they don't sell coffee. They're selling marijuana, and that's yes. the, the kind of the name for a, a marijuana shop. And the, the Dutch, I mean, it, they used to have a problem in the red light district of too many hard drug addicts. And the Dutch decided, let's focus on our hard drug addicted population. Let's take the marijuana out of the crime equation. And they essentially allowed marijuana use in these coffee shops. Uh, the reason, not it, it was not pro-marijuana, I think it was a pragmatic move to be able to deal with the hard drug problem. Is that your take on it? 
Yes, for sure. Uh, w w you talk about hard drugs. It's actually the heroin, which was a problem in the 70s and the 80s. And the, the government decided to focus on that problem um, mm -hmm. and leave the people alone that were smoking uh, marijuana because they weren't the big problem, the big issue there. Um, yeah, and having coffee shops uh, means that uh, I, as a local, I don't have to buy anything in a dark alley uh, from somebody that I don't know. I can actually go into a shop. Uh, the shops have a lot of regulations. You know, you have to be 18. You cannot buy more than five grams because if you do so, they see you as a dealer. So it became quite a, a normal thing. And they were able to deal with that problem. And as you said, it's, it's highly regulated. You can't advertise it. You're never going to see buy two, get one free in the window. But, uh, you know, they're, they're not selling coffee, that's for sure. Um, but that's one reason Amsterdam is on a lot of people's bucket list when they go to Europe because they want to check out this phenomenon. And as you mentioned, they're moderating it now. And I think the city is pretty good at doing that by licensing, right? Uh, each year, they can decide where they want to give license for this. And if they want to change a neighborhood, they just stop allowing licenses for sex workers and for marijuana. Yeah. In the last 10 years, I've seen the uh, amount of coffee shops going down rapidly. And I also uh, know that nobody's allowed to open a new coffee shop. You, you are only allowed to take over an existing uh, uh, one. Um, so I could show you streets which used to be full of coffee shops and now there's none. So right. the whole, uh, it's all changed in that But uh, you know, street. Dennis, the bottom line is it's just a very out-of-the-box practical solution or way of dealing with a very persistent problem. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're exploring what's new in Amsterdam with Dutch tour guide Dennis Heritz. And he's called Amsterdam home now for 25 years, and he's updating us on what's changing in the popular and always intriguing capital city of the Netherlands. Dennis's website is lovemycitytours.com, and I've spent days with Dennis, prowling the back streets of Amsterdam, updating my guidebooks, and Dennis really knows his stuff. Dennis, this is so interesting now in Europe that crowding is a big problem. And I know when I go to Amsterdam, there is an issue of short-term rentals, uh, like Airbnb, that's driving the uh, cost of living up for people who would normally rent an apartment in the old center. What have you noticed with the influx of tourism and the popularity of Airbnb kind of services where tourists can rent a little apartment in a short-term way? Uh, well, in the beginning, uh, there was a big change, a big influence, uh, thanks to Airbnb. Uh, at the moment, it's uh, less because city council changed quite a lot of rules. Uh, at this moment, you are only allowed to rent out your apartment for 30 days max per year. And every time you do so, you have to let city council know. Uh, before, uh, people could rent out their apartment for the entire year. Uh, which means I knew people that, you know, two of them would move into one apartment and they would rent out the other one. And in Amsterdam, it's quite easy to ask uh, 100 or 200 euros per night. Uh, but they have uh, uh, changed all of that. And is that because of the opportunity for landlords to make more money by short-term rentals? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that yep. changes the character of a neighborhood. So as as consumers looking for an alternative to an expensive hotel room, we might think, oh, Airbnb, that's great. But there is an ethical issue because it does tend to have a negative impact on existing communities. And the irony is the, the charm of the existing community is why we want to go there first. And if everybody, you know, outbids them for a place to sleep, there's no more of that charm left. No. Many, many cities are dealing with this. 
Dennis, uh, we've got a few more minutes, and I'd like to just talk about what's new from a um, visitor's point of view in Amsterdam. Um, what's the latest with the museums? Is there any changes we should know about for the coming year? The Amsterdam Museum is still closed because of renovation. That will uh, probably take one or two years. And that's that's a great museum, by the way, the, the Amsterdam City Museum, right in, in the old center of town. And that's a shame that that's closed. But whenever it's closed, it means there's good things going on and it'll be worth uh, waiting for when it does reopen. Yeah, I, I follow it uh, because I, I'm very interested and I've seen what they are going to do and it's going to be amazing. Uh, it's just a pity that sometimes people miss it because it's actually in the busiest part of the city. But besides that, no big changes in any of the uh, museums. One thing I would say is everybody wants to see Anne Frank, Van Gogh, and the Rijksmuseum. And I would say all three of those, you should figure that a reservation in advance, a a timed entry, is essentially required. Uh, Don't even try to go there without booking in advance, right? Yep, uh, especially uh, the Anne Frank House, because they have their tickets online only six weeks in advance. And Mm. you want to put that in your agenda and be there uh, at the moment the tickets go online Ah. because they they can go quite fast. Um, The Rijks and the Van Gogh Museum, uh, you can book that any time a year. But I tend to tell my guests all the time, please remember that we have so much more uh, yeah. uh, museums and small ones. Uh, so there's quite a lot of museums left. Oh, beautiful little museums. Pipe museums, houseboat museums, Bible museums, tropical museum. Uh, there's so many great museums to see. And if you're frustrated by the Anne Frank House, I would remind you, yes, it's great to see the Anne Frank House, but the serious museum about the Dutch resistance and that whole experience is the Dutch Resistance Museum. It's newly renovated. It is a delightful museum, and there's never a crowd there. You can just step right up, and you'll feel like you're only the only person in that place while everybody else is frustrated to try to get into Anne Frank's. Yeah, and don't forget, it's also in a very beautiful area, uh, the Jewish Cultural Quarter. So that's definitely worth to pay his visit. You know, uh, one thing I found is in a, in a trend in Amsterdam was chefs' choice menus at trendy, popular restaurants. There's a lot of happening restaurants that are very, very popular. And I found they don't have a, a menu uh, traditionally where you select different things. You just say, I want three courses or five courses, and the chef will serve you whatever he wants. Have you noticed that in restaurants? Uh, yes. Yeah. Depends on what you're looking for. Uh, we have the best family restaurants where it feels like you're actually sitting in their living room. And we have the restaurants you just mentioned. These are places where you'll probably be for like two or three hours. Every yeah. time you get something, they will exactly explain you how it's made and, it. and, and the ingredients. So uh, now of, when customers ask me, can you give us some dinner recommendations, which I'm happy to do, I always tell them, well, you can go two ways. You want to go sit in the living room, you spend 45 minutes, maybe one hour, or you want a, something that sort of fills your evening and then you yeah. go to the more, yeah, at what some people call f- fine dining, but actually it's chef choice and you only decide how many courses you want. And it's fine dining, but it's not over-the-top expensive, I think, because it's economic for them to just serve one menu to everybody and it's just quality food. Um, coming away from my research visit just uh, last year, it occurred to me there's four things you need to reserve before coming to Amsterdam for the typical tourist. If you want to see Anne Frank, Van Gogh, and Rijksmuseum for the Rembrandts, reserve that in advance. And if you want a popular one of these Chef's Choice restaurants, reserve that in advance also because it's really frustrating for a visitor to find that, oh, those are all booked out. So when you know you're going to be there and you want a memorable meal, do that. But those are the four things you need to reserve in advance. 
everything else just about you can do on the fly. Is there anything else we should know about that would be really important and you would want a reservation in advance? Uh, I would say uh, private boats. And that would be the only thing I would add to your list. I would say if you didn't experience Amsterdam from the water, you definitely missed out on something. Um, I also know for a lot of my guests, it's the highlight of their trip. And there are not so many private boats to rent so also that one i advise yeah i advise people and that's a is that a do-it-yourself do you do you captain the boat yourself or does do you have a guided tour on the boat a a guided tour yeah Yeah. for sure Okay, so that's a good advice other big news dennis is the new um underground connection to north amsterdam on the other side of the river yes uh, quite amazing especially uh, who digs a tunnel uh, underneath a city center which is more than 750 years old it was quite a challenge Uh, But now it's amazing uh, how people from the north can get downtown in like less than 10 minutes. And I see a lot of people uh, using it, uh, not just locals, but also a lot of visitors uh, because they can travel through the city quite quickly. For example, from downtown to the neighborhood called The Pipe, where you have one of our best uh, food markets. You get out of the subway and you're there. Yeah, that's so exciting. Dennis Harris is a local tour guide who offers custom walking and bike tours of Amsterdam and nearby, including private boat tours on the canals. He's updating us on what's new this year in Amsterdam on Travel with Rick Steves. Dennis's website is lovemycitytours.com, and he spells his last name G-E-R-R-I-T-S. Dennis, I could talk all day with you. It's so interesting. Thank you, Dennis Heditz, for joining us. If we could just wrap up our discussion, as a tour guide and somebody who loves Amsterdam, what are you most excited about what's going on in Amsterdam right now, both for, for residents and for visitors? Um, I'm most excited about the uh, projects around the Ai River. Uh, this is the big river behind Central Station. Uh, this used to be the harbor of Amsterdam. And this area next to the river is now one of the hotspots in Amsterdam. Uh, a lot of new apartment buildings Uh, A lot of festivals, a lot of nice restaurants at the water, a lot of raves in the weekend. Uh, A lot of artists have their studios there. Uh, If you would have asked me 20 years ago, will you ever take your guests to the old harbor, which as a child, there was a no-go area. And now I love to take the people there. So it's the Ai River behind Central Station and everything, all the projects on both Mm -hmm. sides of that river are amazing, and I get very excited uh, when I'm there as a local, and I feel the same with my guests. And we should remind our, our listeners that's I spelled I-J. Is that right? I-J. Yes, it is. The I-River. And, you know, when you, everybody's going to be at the train station, and everybody's inclined to turn right and go into the center. But before you do that, turn left and stand on the balcony overlooking the river from the train station, and you'll see what Dennis is talking about, and, and that's a reminder that all over Europe, they're taking formerly run-down uh, industrial wastelands and turning them into really energetic, revitalized people zones, and that's a beautiful thing about traveling in Amsterdam or elsewhere in Europe. Dennis Heritz, dankuvel. Alsjeblieft. And uh, hope to see you next time I'm in Amsterdam. Thanks, Dennis. Yeah, I hope so too. You're welcome. Tot ziens. Polynesians have lived on the world's most remote islands in the Pacific for at least a thousand years. We'll delve into the different explanations for how they settled Hawaii, Tahiti, Easter Island, and New Zealand. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. 
Look closely at the Pacific Ocean on a world globe. The first thing I wonder about is, how did people manage to populate such far-flung islands so many centuries before jet travel and modern communication? Researchers and explorers have had their theories over the years. The editor of the Harvard Review has been looking into this. She's examined everything from the oral histories Polynesians have passed down to the journals of Captain Cook to the recent accomplishments of the Polynesian Voyaging Society. And now there's DNA evidence to help piece together the puzzle of Polynesia. Christina Thompson explores it all in her book, Sea People. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So what is this puzzle, the the complete title of your book, Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia? Well, the puzzle is that when Europeans or outsiders first arrived in the Pacific way back centuries ago, they found all these little tiny islands which were very far apart from one another and very far away from everything else, very far away from the continental edges of the Pacific. And they found that almost all of these islands, all the habitable islands, were in fact inhabited by people. And so it dawned on them fairly early that there was this question, who were these people, where had they come from, and of course, you know, how did they get there? So that was the puzzle of Polynesia. And Polynesia is vast. I mean, in your book, you've got a map and it shows the Polynesian Triangle. And it goes from New Zealand to Hawaii all the way to Easter Island. And these islands are just tiny specks if you were flying over it. I mean, it's remarkable that they would have something in common. Is this one culture? Is there some way that we can surmise that they all came from the same place? Yes. Well, that's the other part of the puzzle. So they found that there were all these diff- all these people on all these islands, and the islands were far apart, and they were hard to get to, and nobody knew anything about where these people had come from. Some people imagined that they had been created in the islands by God because it was so improbable that they should be there. But the mm-hmm. other thing that happened was that, and this is really Captain Cook, this is in the 18th century, when Europeans, they had a hard time understanding the Pacific. They didn't have very good navigational skills, and they sailed across it and got lost a lot. And then towards the 18th century, they got better at it. And Cook was the great geographer, the great navigator of the Pacific in that period. And he visited a very large number of the islands in Polynesia. So he was in New Zealand. He was in Tahiti. He was in the Hawaiian Islands. He discovered the Hawaiian Islands. Well, for the European world, that is. He was in the Marquesas. He was at Easter. So it dawned on him that these people were remarkably similar. But once he began to see the similarities among the people, it started to become clear to everybody that it wasn't just that there were all these people, they were all the same people. Hmm. What indicated to him that they were similar? Well, so one of the things that happened was that he, he sailed into the Pacific originally to observe the transit of Venus on the island of Tahiti. So the transit of Venus is when the planet Venus passes across the face of the sun. And in the 18th century, astronomers believed that if they could get it accurately measured, it would help them determine the distance between the Earth and the sun, for example. So his assignment was go out there and make these astronomical observations, which he did. And then he was there for quite a while. And he got to know some Tahitians a little bit. And there was a man named Tupaya who was a priest, I guess is what you'd call him. He was a man of knowledge. He knew a lot of things. He was a navigator. He knew about genealogies. He knew the history. He knew the stars. He knew all these things. And he asked Cook if he could go with him when Cook left. And so he did. He joined the Endeavor, which is kind of an amazing thing to have done. This is 1769. And he sailed with Cook on the next leg of Cook's journey, which took him to New Zealand. 
And when they got there, this is 2,500 miles away, but took them months because they were zigzagging back and forth. And when he got there, it turned out that Tupaya could speak to the Maori, which meant that they shared a common language. And nobody was expecting that. That was a really kind of, you know, mind-bending <laughs> moment. And that connection would have gone back likely centuries before that. Oh, yes. So it turns out, you see, that all these people spoke versions of this language. The uh-huh. people in Hawaii's language was similar to the people in Easter okay. Island, to the people in Tonga, to the people in Samoa, to the people in Tahiti. So that was a really important piece of evidence, that these people were all related and that their their pathway into the Pacific followed some common trail. When I look at your charts in your book, I see there's the Polynesian Triangle and uh, the Society Islands and Tahiti make it, Easter Islands makes it Samoa, New Zealand, Hawaii, but not Fiji. Fiji is part of Melanesia, which looks to me like it's culturally part of Indonesia. And then Micronesia is a, a different swath of island cultures beyond that. Am I understanding these charts right, that these are indicating that while the islands are disparate, the people have a cultural common denominator. And even though Fiji is just a little bit away from Samoa on the map, it's a different culture. Yes. One of the things that's kind of confusing about the Pacific in these culture areas, so this area called Melanesia, which would include Papua New Guinea and reach all the way over to Fiji, that western part of the Pacific, north of Australia. Mm -hmm. That area is a very complicated area. It has a very old history, very complex history, lots of different peoples, very long period of time of settlement, whereas the Polynesian area, which is this triangle, which is Hawaii, New Zealand, Easter Island, and all the islands inside there, their history is only maybe three and a half thousand years at the most, only a thousand years probably in the Pacific, in the eastern part. So it's a kind of a different story. And it's a little mm-hmm. complicated because it looks like it should be the same story, but it's not. You're married to a Maori man from New Zealand, right? I am. That's true. But the funny thing about my husband is that when he travels in the Pacific, and we do travel as much as we can in the Pacific, he is mistaken for a local everywhere. So we were in Tahiti last year, and everyone thought he was Tahitian until he opened his mouth because he doesn't speak French. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christina Thompson. She's the author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. Christina also edits the Harvard Review Online, and her website is christinathompson.net. Christina, when we're talking about sea people, it's just hard for me to get my brain around that a thousand years ago. They didn't have writing, they didn't have metal tools, but they were kind of aware of each other, or, or they had some common cultural threads Was there trade? Was there communication? Were they completely isolated? What is your best bet of before any contact with Western civilization, did they know about each other? So that's a really interesting question. I think what most people believe is that they're kind of in spheres of interaction. So, for example, in the center of the Pacific, right in the middle, is the Society Islands, and that includes Tahiti and a bunch of Bora Bora and Moore and some other islands people might have heard of. Also, a string, a long string of atolls in the Tuamotus, and then the Marquesas, which are just sort of to the northeast. Those islands, I think there was a lot of interaction there, a lot of traffic between those groups, Mm -hmm. especially the Tuamotus and Tahiti. But probably they didn't know that people were in New Zealand. I mean, once the, the groups broke off and went to their islands, there was, nobody knows how much return voyaging there was. There clearly was some return voyaging, but then it seems to have been over by the time that Europeans arrived in the Pacific. The great age of kind of real 
transoceanic travel seems to have been over. So return voyage, that's a whole different concept. In other words, they could get a one-way ticket venturing out and finding a new world for their, their clan. That's one thing, but then going back to where they came, that's a whole nother thing. Right, right. And a lot of the arguments have focused, especially in the 20th century, a lot of the arguments focused on whether or not there had been return voyaging, whether or not these people had just kind of been blown out to these places and landed in these islands and set up a new life and lived there, or whether they had traveled back and forth. And it seems pretty clear that there was travel back and forth, especially to places like, like you might say, between Tahiti and Hawaii. There's a lot of legendary material that suggests that there was travel back and forth. And that's a long trip. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, from Bora Bora to Tahiti, you can almost see each other, I suppose. But Not quite, but... I mean, you could know that there would be birds or things floating in the water or an indication that there's another island out there, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. So is there anything physical that gives us a little bit of their, I was going to say history, but it's prehistory, right? It's before anything was written. Is there anything physical that we can look at as travelers? Yes, there's a lot of stonework in the Pacific, and one of the things that's interesting is to compare how the the stonework is different in different islands. You know, the monuments of Easter Island are obviously the kind of paramount example. Those are the famous ones. Yeah, those are the famous ones. But there are stone sculptures in the Marquesas, and then there is stonework. There are walls and platforms and Mm -hmm. structures and so forth in most of the other islands. Are we able to date this, and how far back does it go? Right. So, well, the stone you can't really date, but the shell is datable, and the bones, of course— There's also a little bit of pottery, a tiny, tiny bit of pottery, which is kind of weird because the people of the Eastern Pacific are kind of considered to not have pottery, but there is a little. Hmm. The dates also have been, you know, something people have fought about and both thought and fought about. The most recent dates have been moving kind of forward so that this seems like the settlement was a little bit more recent than they had thought maybe 50 or 100 years ago. So, I mean, are we talking hundreds of years or or thousands of years? About a thousand years, probably. So the dates for the settlement of New Zealand, the last Mm -hmm. one is considered to be around 1200 A.D., and Hawaii is sort of around the 1,000 mark. Uh-huh. Probably the society is a little earlier. But if you go over to Samoa and Tonga, those islands were settled more like 2,500, maybe 3,500 in some cases years ago. So much older okay. on the western side of the triangle. Indicating the other That's where they came were populated from. from that original settlement. Correct. That's the direction from which the settlers came. Mm-hmm. And they arrived in those western parts of Polynesia earlier. And then they stayed there for a while. There seems to have been a bit of a pause And then they sort of propagated out to the eastern and the more remote areas. Christina Thompson is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She investigates the different explanations that have risen over the years to explain how people came to live on the most remote islands in the world. She's the author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. Her book won a number of prestigious awards, including the Australian Prime Minister's Literary Award in 2020. Christina's first book in 2008 tackles the history of her Maori husband's home in New Zealand and their cross-cultural marriage. It's called Come On Shore and We Will Kill and Eat You All. We have links to Christina's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. So, Christina, let's talk about the sudden awareness in the Western world of these sea people in Polynesia And what was that like when Europeans first connected with Polynesian cultures? Where did that happen, and what impact did that have on on Polynesia? The very earliest discovery was in 1595, so it was really a long time ago, and it was a Spaniard, and he found the Marquesas. 
And the thing they said about the Marquesas was that the people there were the most beautiful people they had ever seen. (laughs) But most of the early interactions between Polynesians and Europeans were not really all that happy. Often the Europeans killed several of the Polynesians. And, you know, sometimes it went better and sometimes it went worse. But the long-term effect of this arrival of strange people in Polynesia was kind of tough on Polynesians. Not only did they suffer from some of these kind of more violent encounters, but they also were, of course, exposed to diseases that they were not really prepared for, that they had no immunity to. Like Native Americans, that was a... Like Native Americans, exactly. So, you know, Polynesians, especially in the 19th century, once the age of exploration was really over and you had, what you had was a lot of whaling in the Pacific and a lot Mm -hmm. of other kinds of trading going on, missionaries arrived, all these outsiders. And the whalers brought a hugely international cruise. I mean, people from all over the world, Mm -hmm. all ports, you know, and they brought a lot of disease into the Pacific. So that was tough. There were epidemics. The British must have connected with the Hawaiians in some kind of a positive way because they ended up putting the Union Jack on their flag and sending (laughs) some of their royalty to England to study. Was that just under duress? I think that the Polynesians, okay, so it is complicated that what happens in the 19th century, that the Polynesians take on a lot of European characteristics. They they learned to read really fast. They Mm. liked the clothing. They, They absorbed many new foods, different animals. You know, they became a kind of acculturated to Western right. to Western sort of norms very quickly and mm-hmm. quite enthusiastically. So it wasn't certainly wasn't an all bad thing at all. It's just that they were particularly succumbed to the to the diseases and that was that was hard. It must have been very tough. Now if you're a traveler and you want to sightsee and actually see artifacts and learn about this, where do you go? What's a good museum? Oh, there's so many wonderful places. The Bishop Museum in Honolulu is an absolutely mm-hmm. fabulous place, so that's a great place. There are little museums scattered about in various parts in some of the smaller islands, which I always recommend people go to because they're they're very interesting. They can be very small. Mm-hmm. I uh, went to one on the island of Ra'iatea, and there's one on Huahine in Tahiti. So they're great little tiny museums all over. Did they have a situation where, you know, colonial powers, imperial powers would come and basically just loot the country of its heritage and take it back to the Smithsonian Institute or the British Museum or something like that? Because a lot of times in my travels, I, I go to a distant land and I kind of go, well, where's your patrimony? Uh, oh, it's in it's in Berlin or it's in Paris or it's in Washington, D.C. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, you know, there are some Easter Island statues in the in Britain. <laughs> That's one. And there are, there are feather capes. There is a lot of mm-hmm. Maori stuff in various parts of the world in Germany in Britain, all over the museums of natural history and, and places like that in the United States. So there's a lot of it spread around. There's a new museum in Vienna, which is completely dedicated to the souvenirs picked up by the Habsburgs as they traveled the world, and the uh, same thing <laughs> in London. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, imperialistic, but if you're a sightseer, it's easier to go to Vienna maybe than to the Marquesas. And uh, actually, as you're traveling Europe or the United States, you can drop into the Smithsonian or the British Museum and, and check out artifacts from these cultures. Are there some islands that where the indigenous groups survive more vividly to this day? I think that most places are, you know, thoroughly westernized, Mm -hmm. but there are places where in some parts of Polynesia, for example, people speak the native language. Mm -hmm. So Samoans speak Samoan and Tongans speak Tongan. Mm -hmm. In Hawaii, Hawaiian has had to be brought back, really. And in New Zealand, they're bringing back Maori. And in both of Mm -hmm. those places, I think they're being quite successful about bringing their languages back. So that's really, that's really fantastic. That's good news. That is really good news. And that's a trend all over the world is a respect for the smaller languages. Uh, they were on a trend to be losing these languages, but now in, in many regions, the smaller languages are, 
are having a renaissance. I think if there are people willing to do it, it, it is, they are generally declining still, and it can be pretty hard mm-hmm. to bring them back. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christina Thompson. Her latest book is about the settlement of Polynesia. It's called Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. Christina, in, in all of your travels and all of your studies, in fact, in your personal life, you, you married into Polynesia. You married a Maori man from New Zealand. What is it that you admire about Polynesians? What do you admire most about this culture that inspires you to, to share this information? I think that these cultures are just beautiful to me. There's tremendous affection for children. There's a kind of vigor, a love of beauty, a love of dance, a love of sort of, there's kind of stylishness in a lot of these cultures. I saw a woman not too long ago in Tahiti with the most exquisite hair and flowers and, oh, it's just beautiful. And I think that the their deep history is really amazing, that they made these incredible voyages across mm-hmm. vast, vast stretches of ocean. Christina Thompson, author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. Uh, thanks for sharing with us uh, your passion for this corner of the world and, and a fascinating insight into uh, an ongoing adventure to figure out the puzzle of Polynesia. Thank you. Sometimes Travel with Rick Steves listeners get inspired to write a haiku poem about what they see and do in their travels. You can send us yours from a link on the radio page of our website at ricksteves.com radio. We might even read it on the show one day. Here's a few we thought you might enjoy. Deborah A. Bennett of Carbondale, Illinois, provides a seasonal snapshot from downtown Chicago. Chicago in spring. Ancient river and the trees all one clover green. Here, too, the lover, all the poets sing about, full Chicago moon. Art Paul Schlosser writes what it feels like where he lives in Wisconsin. Friendly, like a gift. Hanging out in Madison, you feel at home. And Catherine Johnston of Spokane, Washington, has fond memories of her time as a student in Florence. Dante whispers, soft. Medici majesty reigns. Duomo spirits rise. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to GBH Radio in Boston for their help this week. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. You can send us yours at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves Guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. That's because we lovingly update them in person and cut through all the superlatives to give you hard and smart opinions based on decades of experience. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.